Our Untangled Minds by CUSM is for informational purposes only and does not constitute professional medical or psychological advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Please make sure if you do have any questions or concerns that are medical or psychological in nature that you seek out a physician or qualified mental health provider for further help. Furthermore, the information, viewpoints, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of the individuals that are involved. They do not represent absolute fact and are subject to change at any point in time. CUSM does not accept responsibility for these views. Lastly, the names and details of any medical stories shared in this episode have been edited for privacy. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Our Untangled Minds here at CUSM. I'm Drew Richard. Today, we'll be speaking with our co-host, Megan Smith. Hi, everyone. And today's episode will be about correctional facilities medicine, aka prison medicine. We will be guest interviewing Dr. Timothy Hans. Dr. Hans is a faculty here at CUSM, as well as an active practicing provider at a correctional facilities. And we hope you enjoy this episode today. One of the big intentions behind today's episode is revealing the realities behind correctional facilities medicine, what it is, what experiences you might be able to expect there, and what it means for our community. So we hope you enjoy this episode. And if you have any other questions or interests um, in information like this, please feel free to check out the rest of our episodes at Our Untangled Minds at CUSM on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you all. So how did you become introduced to correctional facilities or prison medicine? Um, well, I worked for Kaiser for 30 years. And when I retired from them in 2019, I started working for a company um, called KPG, which is a registry basically for doctors. And um, so as a registry, what they do is places that need a doctor, they contact them and they try to find a doctor who will work at whatever facility. So I originally started working up in Northern California, Kaiser. Um, and I would go up there and work three days out of a couple weeks. So about six days a month, I would work up there. And when COVID hit, they stopped seeing patients. They didn't need me to do phone visits anymore. So that job was terminated. But KBG had an opening at the California Correctional Institute in Tehachapi, which is a men's prison. It's about two and a half hours from my house. And they said, we can offer you a job there. And of course, my family immediately said, no, <laughs> you can't work at a prison. <laughs> you know, you're going to get killed. Mm -hmm. So they offered a contract and they originally wanted me to work there for six months, but I don't want to necessarily dedicate six months to a place that I may hate. So I said, I'll I'll start off with a three-month contract, work there for three months, give it a try and see how I like it. And uh, so we signed the contract and I started working at CCI. Awesome. So how long have you been working in prison medicine then? Started July 2020, I think it was. Yeah, so almost a year and a half. Well, going on two years, I guess, in what, four months? Yeah. Yeah, sooner than we'd think. Um, what was your first thoughts um, before you got started, like about your first day going into it? So the prison system is divided into levels of felonies. So the more violent felons are put at a level four. Okay, that's the highest level of felonies. Then there's level three felons, level two felons, level one felons. So they wanted to start me off at a level one felon yard. So these are not generally violent criminals. These are people who have either through good behavior have managed to lower they, they use a point system on felonies, have managed to lower their points to get off of a high-level yard, a level four yard, work their way down to a level one yard, or people who've committed nonviolent crimes, typically drug crimes, something like that, 
that got them into a state prison, got a state prison system. So I started working off there, so I felt pretty safe. Um, and I wasn't too worried about that. So my introduction was through a very non-threatening kind of like uh, intro working on a level one yard, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, did you have to go through any like safety training before you started at the prison? So typically, yes, you would. But because of COVID, everything stopped. All the training, no classrooms, anything like that. So uh, it was basically show up and uh, here's your, go to personnel, get your name tag. Once you get your name tag, then the secretary would walk me over to where the uh, level one yard was, which at CCI was called E-yard. And uh, so going through the control gates, um, going through the control stations, I had to go through one, two, three gates, control gates, just to get to the yard. Uh, and then they actually had built a new clinic on this yard. Uh, it's fairly large. There's probably 10 dorms. So for level one felons, they're housed in dorms. They're not housed in, in prison cells. So they have large dormitory bays with bunk beds. And uh, they built this brand new clinic, modern clinic, like any other clinic, like any Kaiser clinic I worked at before. You know, exam tables the same, all the equipment on the wall the same, clinic assistants, you know, working up your patients for you the same, all that kind of stuff. So the safety training, which was the original question, was done OJT. So when I would make a mistake, they would yell at me. Wow. Goodness. Um, so, so on that, that's a lot of kind of pressure on you on your first day. So did you, did you feel safe your first few weeks at the, at the facility? Yeah, I felt very safe, actually. Once I got into the environment and realized that, especially with level one felons, these are not dangerous people. They're going to be paroled relatively soon. They're going to be in prison, you know, not very long, typically. So they don't want to do anything to mess that up. Um, and anytime that you commit an infraction in the prison system, you get points added. And points mean more time, less privileges, maybe even taking a level one felon. And now he's boosted to a level three yard where he has even less privileges than he would on a level one yard. Stuff like that. So um, these guys aren't looking to get in any trouble. So I felt very safe. So how did your first day go? It sounds like it was pretty hectic if you made mistakes, but for the most part, how was it? It was just like any other clinic day, to be honest with you, except the requests and the reasons for visit were a little bit different. Almost everybody in prison, especially the younger people, are very young, healthy people um, with no medical problems. So the requests are like, I want different shoes. Okay. <laughs> I want to be put on a lower bunk. What? <laughs> yeah, I need you to switch me from a top bunk to a low bunk. <laughs> prescription oh, well, lower bunk? Can I, <laughs> yeah, you need a prescription. You need a medical excuse to be on a lower bunk. So, there, so those kind of complaints are kind of different. It's like, okay, I need to find out what's going on. Why am I getting these weird requests? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was rather interesting. Hmm. Did you ever find an answer to that? Like, were, are you the right person for those questions to be transferred to a lower bunk? Yeah, generally to have a lower bunk assigned, you need some sort of medical problems. And they had a certain list of medical problems that would definitely qualify for a low bunk if you had any of those. Otherwise, doctors could make exceptions. Mm -hmm. So the prisoner would try to find those exceptions to get the low bunk. Because apparently if you have a low bunk, you get the storage space under the bunk for your stuff mm -hmm. as well. So having the low bunk is, is, you know, something that they're very desirable. 
especially in a dormitory when otherwise you just have a locker. And so there's very limited stuff you can have. So how do you go about doing specialist appointments? They'll book the appointment, then they'll tell the, the, the prisoner the day before. Oh, okay. So they'll tell them the day before, and especially during COVID, then they'd have to be COVID tested before they could leave to make sure they were COVID negative. Then they'd have to be tested when they got back to make sure they're still COVID negative. And then they just started putting them in quarantine no matter what for 10 days after they've been off to a doctor's visit at a different facility, and then they'd come back. Um, so they would tell them the day before. So I would stop looking at when their appointment is, and I would just say, yes, they did put in your appointment for the orthopedist. Yes, you're going to see him. I'm not sure when. Uh, Dr. Hans, thank you so much uh, for answering those questions. Extending on to a bit about your kind of experiences now after your first day, um, what was prison medicine like during COVID? So during COVID is when I started, was one of the reasons that I felt very safe is because we saw less patients because they didn't want to spread COVID um, and before the vaccines came out. So, you know, as soon as I started in July, because COVID started that March. So COVID had already been pretty well spreading. So they were trying to limit visits to only really necessary visits. So I'd see maybe five, six patients a, bit, a day at the most. And otherwise, everybody was pretty much kept in their dorms. They very much limited yard time for all the prisoners. And in fact, when they first went through a lockdown, um, on the upper yards where people are in cells, trying to keep everybody kind of quarantined down. It was so horrendous for those patients who were in those cells that they finally put a word out through one of the quote-unquote shot callers on the upper yards that guards were going to get hurt if they didn't take them off lockdown. So once they did that and the guards found out about it, they started negotiating. And so then they started negotiating, okay, how about one cell block at a time, have some yard time, like an hour outside their cells and stuff. Um, Cause they didn't know how to deal with the COVID thing. Um, so that's one of the reasons it felt very safe because we weren't seeing very many patients. And then uh, once they started doing the vaccines, things started relaxing more. We were seeing more patients and then we'd um, um, start seeing more not just necessary cases, but just general follow-ups and things like that on like regular medical problems. And then um, as re restrictions got less and less, then, we just, then they started upping and we started seeing more patients, regular patients. Then they started visitations. Once they started visitations, family visitations for their prisoners, then I got a taste of what the prison life was like before COVID. And that was kind of surprising because that wasn't such a safe environment as before. When everybody was locked down, everybody was pretty safe. There wasn't much going on. There wasn't any opportunities for the prisoners to fight or anything like that. But once the visitation started, more drugs started coming into the prison. As more drugs started coming into the prison, more drug deals would be made. And if those weren't fulfilled, then they would have fights between different gangs in the yards which they would call a riot, but basically it wasn't a riot to like burn down the prison or, you know, demand uh, better conditions or anything like that, which is what I would characterize as a riot. Instead, it was more of a fight between gang members. They had a big fight in B Yard. In order to break up the fights at our prison, the guards use these uh, 40 millimeter rubber bullets, um, which are big and they hurt and they can break bones. They shot 110 rubber bullets into the yard to try and break up the fight. You know, they tell people to get down. They send tear gas in. Well, actually, not tear gas, but they use pepper spray. So they have 
pepper spray grenades. They have pepper spray that shoots like 20 feet out of these guns. Very concentrated pepper spray. When that didn't break up the fight, then they started shooting rubber bullets. If you run out of rubber bullets, they start shooting real bullets. <laughs> so they shot 110 rubber bullets into the yard to break up this massive fight. <laughs> Pretty intense. So that's when I started thinking, okay, this is what my family was worried about when he came to prison. <laughs> now I know what they were talking about. <laughs> because when everybody's locked down, there was no fights. There was no violence. This is where the violence happens. This is how it happens. Yeah, so if I would have been introduced to that right away, I might have not felt so safe, but going in during COVID made me feel a lot safer. Um, interesting. So after a, an event, like a riot or something, do you see the prisoners after they've gotten their injuries from those events? Or do they go to like an ER somewhere? What happens to the prisoners who sustain injury from that? Okay, so the protocol is they call a code. When they call a code, the RNs have to go. Typically, the medical assistants will go. Once they secured the scene, so they have the prisoners down on the ground, there's no longer violence taking place, then they do a triage. So then they'll go out into the yard, they'll start triaging the prisoners, those that seem to be severely injured, you know, get seen right away. Those who aren't so injured then are not seen right away. So they'll bring the seriously injured into the clinics for us to be seen. Of course, the prisoners can always refuse to be seen, and a lot of times in situations like this, they do. So... They might have really bad injuries, and we might have to try to talk them into being seen, but oftentimes they'll, especially the very hardcore kind of guys, I don't need to be seen for this. This is nothing kind of thing, you know? And so then we'll see them at the clinic, and if they're serious enough, we might send them out to the local ER, or we might send them to Bakersfield ER, depending on the severity of the injuries and what they might need to treat those injuries. I saw one guy who uh, decided not to get down during a fight, he got shot in the leg with a rubber bullet, broke his tibia. <laughs> yeah, the rubber bullets are pretty impressive. Uh, brought him in. We did the x-ray, saw the broken tibia. Obviously, he needed to be seen by an orthopedist specialist. So we had to send him to Bakersfield where the orthopedists are. And uh, so for follow-up, so it works that way. They don't just get automatically triaged out. We try to treat them. I sold one guy. I couldn't get the staple gun to work at the prison yard. When he got hit in the head by something, these guys jumped him had this big old gash in his head. I couldn't get the staple gun to work, so I just actually sewed it up old-fashioned, you know, with sutures. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I love it. Um, so, I mean, those situations withholding does definitely require a lot of preparation. Um, what kind of preparation do you have to do when you're going on your days to the, the prison facilities? Well, for me, it's a two and a half hour drive. That's the biggest one. I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I get up at four, pack my lunch and hit the road. I usually get there, uh, depending on the yard I'm working on, I might get there uh, between seven and 7.30 and start getting ready to see my patients. So I just prep like I do any other clinic I would work at. So uh, I got moved around the yard after uh, E-yard I told them, you know, I can work wherever the need was. So sometimes I'd work a level two yard, a level three yard, or we have two level four yards, 4A and 4B, and I'd work those yards. Um, and the, the patients are a lot different, and their complaints are a lot different depending on what yard you're working on. So when you're working on a four yard, they're not asking for a low bunk. <laughs> they're beyond that. You're going to see them either for legitimate medical problems or you're going to see them for like legitimate injuries that they've received during a fight. So it's a lot more interesting medicine 
that you're going to see. Um, those yards, you definitely have to wear a, a stab-proof vest. Uh, you have to bring a whistle. Uh, you have an alarm, which is almost looks like a, a garage door opener. So if you hit the alarm, the guards come running. So I accidentally hit the alarm twice. <laughs> the guards come running. <laughs> it's like box of donuts next time you work. <laughs> <laughs> I accidentally hit it twice. They're, they're saying, the staff was like, hey, if you just want to bring us donuts, you don't have to keep hitting the alarm. <laughs> <laughs> just bring us donuts. <laughs> so wearing the stab-proof vest was quite a was quite a shock to the system when I started working the upper level yards. This is definitely not Kaiser any longer. <laughs> yeah, that's something. Yeah, but you know, you're treating the patients the same, or at least I would. Treat the patients as patients. I don't know I don't want to know why they're there. I don't know what crime they committed. The staff is extremely professional and very, very well trained, extremely helpful, and that's part of the reason I still make the drive. I still go there. because uh, there's a definite need. And, you know, I feel just so wonderfully supported by everybody there, and there's a definite need, so. That's awesome. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, uh, I was curious what the facilities and, like, resources were like in the office that you have there versus, like, you know, what you had access to before when you were working for Kaiser. Because you mentioned x-rays. What else do you guys have, like, access to? Do you do, like, labs there? Do you have to ship off lab work for, you know, an off-site um, company or anything? Like, how do you... How much care can you give on site? The experience there is like working in an outside clinic because I worked at an outside clinic at Kaiser. So our home base, the home hospital is Fontana Kaiser. Fontana Kaiser area has several outlying clinics. One of the outlying clinics I worked at was in the San Bernardino Clinic, which had a very small lab, had limited x-ray availability. Okay, but we could st run some stat labs. So if I ordered some stat labs in the morning, I could get results that afternoon. At the clinic that I work at, at the, at the uh, prison, and it doesn't matter which yard, all the clinics, the exam rooms are pretty much the same. They have the same otoscopes, ophthalmoscopes on the wall. They have the same exam tables. The difference is, is the major difference is, if the guard thinks that the prisoner I might be seeing is, has a reputation of being in trouble or thinks there might be trouble during the visit, he'll stand right by the door with me. So that's one of the ways that I feel very safe. That's different from working at Kaiser. I didn't need a guard by the door typically. But I have x-ray available and I can get pretty much stat x-ray. So if I order an x-ray that morning, I could see it that afternoon. Labs are not run on the prison grounds. Those are sent out. So I don't have availability for stat labs. If somebody needs stat labs, I can have them transported to the nearest ER in Tehachapi, which is not very far away. It's a small ER. It has very limited resources. There's no specialty care available. But if I need like a stat lab, if I think somebody needs stat labs, they can at least start there. And then that ER can send them out to one of the other ERs. Um, so it's pretty much the same as what I had at, at Kaiser San Bernardino, except I don't get stat labs. But these guys aren't that sick. I don't generally need stat labs. Okay. Um, so that brings me to my next question then. So have you seen any high acuity cases before, very severely injured or severely ill patients? Yes. <laughs> uh, severely injured um, I think most people know in the prison system, uh, rapists and child molesters are targets for the other prisoners. Um, 
they have their standards and those guys are outside the standards. So um, when people go to, I always wondered, how did they know what you did? Apparently when you go to prison and when you go to your cell block or wherever you're going to go, you have your paperwork and it says why you're there. And you, the other prisoners will demand to see your paperwork. They want to know why you're there. If you don't show them that paperwork, they automatically assume you're there for either being a child molester or a rapist, and then you're a target, and they will beat you up. And in some cases, depending on what you did, they might even try to kill you. Um, so I had seen several assaults. One guy had his arms severely broken. It was the second time he was beaten up, uh, and he was beaten until he was unconscious. Uh, in the yard, when they finally broke up the fight, brought him into the clinic, he had a swan neck deformity of the forearm, it was so badly broken, um, had head wounds, that sort of thing. So we transported him, of course, right away out of the facility. And of course, and he was moved to a different prison. Um, so they try to separate those cases from uh, the regular inmates, but they can't always do it. Um, as far as severely ill, not so much. Most people with their chronic med medical problems are pretty well managed, actually. Um, and there's quite a few. We have diabetics, we have hypertensive, we have asthmas, you know, those kind of regular diseases that any place else does. Um, but not so much critically ill other than people who got sick with COVID. You know, severe respiratory infections, severe pneumonias and that sort of thing. Uh, transferring them out, they would come back sometimes months later on oxygen because of, you know, interstitial lung disease caused by the COVID pneumonias. So, yeah, you could see, you know, pretty severe cases. So were all the severe COVID cases transferred out for treatment um, for the facilities to be used there? Yeah, they're all transferred to the local hospitals. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. when I first went there in July, in fact, only 60 of the staff had COVID. None of the inmates did. But the state of California transfers inmate patients pretty readily. I'm not sure what all the transfers are always about, but they seem to do that a lot. So they started transferring in COVID cases to our prison, which didn't have any at the time. And then it started spreading through our prison population. And so then when people would get sick with COVID pneumonias and that sort of thing, we'd have to transfer them out to hospitals. Otherwise, if they were diagnosed with COVID but had mild symptoms, we'd quarantine them. And then we'd isolate the people who were uh, exposed and make sure they didn't develop any symptoms and that sort of thing. Otherwise, we'd have to put them in quarantine as well. So they tried to isolate and, and uh, quarantine as best we could with the COVID cases that we had in our prison and try to control the spread that way. And I think they actually did pretty good. You know, we didn't have too many people with COVID pneumonias, even though they're packed, you know, into a dorm. And you'd think it would spread through like wildfire, you know. They did pretty good at actually isolating, testing all the time. Uh, prisoners could refuse testing, and a lot did once they realized, hey, if I test positive, I'm going to lose this housing unit. I'm going to have to go someplace else, so I'm going to quit testing. <laughs> so then a lot of the prisoners would quit testing. When they started offering vaccinations, they could refuse vaccinations. The funny thing was, as the final stats turned out after we started doing all the vaccinations, the medical staff was the least likely to agree to get to get vaccinations. The custody staff was the second, and then the prisoners were the most likely to become vaccinated. So of all the people who didn't want vaccinations, the medical staff were the ones who had the highest rate of refusal. I am not sure why. I'm not. I 
I'm still not sure why, but I would ask some people because I was doing and monitoring vaccinations for the staff. And so when people refuse, okay, so why would you do that? And you get really bizarre, bizarre reasons. Hmm. That's surprising. Certainly ironic. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing all that, uh, Dr. Hans. Um, I wanted to know, have you ever granted a compassionate release for a prisoner? No, and I'm not allowed to, I don't think. I don't think I have that, any kind of that authority. Okay. Of course. Um, rolling into that, has your opinion working with individuals who have been incarcerated changed since your first day now into kind of 18 months, two years into working in correctional facilities medicine? Well, <laughs> once you start working at a prison and you start getting to know prisoners, you realize there's, in my opinion, there's kind of... Um, there's the group that are definitely hardcore criminal mind. And actually those patients don't want to generally be seen by the doctor. So that's fine by me. And those people are going to commit crimes in any environment and they're still committing crimes and violence in, even in a prison system. I think there's just some people with that mindset, you know, and if you maybe if you're religious and you believe God hardening somebody's heart, I think that's somebody that might have a hardened heart. Okay. Then there's people in prison who have, made terrible choices and mistakes. So now my opinions changed that I think there's some people in prison who've really just made some bad choices in their life. And I don't know that they're actual, you know, they did a criminal act, but I don't know that they're actually a criminal. If you can see the difference. Yeah, I do understand what you're saying. I do think there's some people who are criminals and have that criminal mindset and will commit crimes no matter what the environment they're in. And I think there's other people that made bad choices. So it's changed a lot. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hans, for answering those questions about what uh, medicine was like in practicing in prison after your first day. Um, we're going to ask you some more general questions, kind of about what day-to-day -day stuff looks like, I guess, generally, like on a broader scale. So my first question for you is, what does the typical like checkup look like? The typical checkup? Mm -hmm. Or like a typical appointment, I guess. Oh, well, that depends on what yard you're on. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing a typical checkup, let's say on now D yard, which is a lower level felons. Uh, right now we're seeing a lot of new, new arrivals. So a lot of times it's like a check-in physical on very healthy people, young people without any other medical problems. Um, so it's just like taking any, any kind of history like that. So filling in the gaps of what they did in, during his check-in. Uh, so if they didn't ask him what surgery he's had, I'm going to fill in that part of the history, his family history, that sort of thing, you know, uh, do kind of a general ROS to make sure he doesn't have any other symptoms or any other problems that have been overlooked. Um, then I'll do a fairly complete physical exam. Um, because of the COVID thing, everybody's wearing a mask. I don't bother to have them lower their mask to check in their throat or mouth. I do look in their ears. I'll check their neck, listen to their heart and lungs, press on their belly, um, you know, in the general uh, checkup kind of thing. Um, and then I'll offer them routine labs, give them the choice. Do they want routine labs? Uh, because they're offered free so they can get them, you know? Uh, so I see you have a family history of diabetes, uh, but you, nobody's ever bothered doing any blood tests on you. So do you mind if I order some blood tests? And then what we'll do is, you know, we'll check your sugar. I can check your liver. I can check, you know, to make sure you haven't been exposed to hepatitis C because a large population of the, of the prisoners do have hepatitis C. Um, you know, do your blood count, make sure you don't have any anemia. Let's check your cholesterol, get a baseline on that. Do you mind if we do any of those labs? 
No, that's fine. Yeah, why don't we go ahead and do those? Okay, so I'll order the labs. What they're going to do then is they're going to give you what they call a ducket. So the guards will give them a notification that they're going to get their labs drawn like the next day. And uh, so the lab will come over, they'll call them into the clinic, and they'll draw their blood. And then they'll send me the results. So uh, the requirement is that I send every prisoner who gets labs or x-rays a letter about the results. Like, your labs were normal. Or, your labs are abnormal, I'm scheduling an appointment. And then, you know, they'll make sure that I've scheduled actually a follow-up appointment to talk about their labs. Um, so that's kind of the basic routine. Otherwise, I'm seeing, just like any other... I see asthma, I'll see, you know, diabetes follow-up, I'll see hypertension. Um, if I'm seeing somebody on the upper yard, I might see more injuries-related stuff. I'll see a broken hand, he was in a fight, broke his hand, now I'm going to have to send him out to ortho, make sure he gets seen for his ortho thing. I typically don't see fights, that sort of thing, on the lower yards. Um, again, because these people are, you know, Number one, not generally violent people, and also they're looking to get out, so they're not looking to get in trouble. So, on the upper yards, especially if they're their life without parole, you know, it kind of doesn't make any difference what they do. Okay, what are you going to sentence me to two lives? Okay, if I come back, you can sentence me again. Fine, I'll spend it in prison. You know, it's kind of their attitude. So, um, so sometimes more injury related stuff, more musculoskeletal stuff, especially since there's not much else to do. I see a lot of overuse injuries. They're doing 500 push-ups a day, 500 burpees a day. So I see a lot of overuse of shoulders, a lot of overuse on knees, tendonitis, muscle strains, that sort of thing. And then trying to explain to them what overuse is. How could it be overuse? I always do 500 push-ups a day. I've been doing it for three years. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> How could that be a problem if I've always done it? Why is my shoulder hurting now? Okay, let me start over. <laughs> the other things I see, the footwear they issue in the prison system, my opinion, isn't adequate, so I see a lot of foot problems. They cook with a lot of onions, I see a lot of reflux. Yeah, so reduce the onions, issue better footwear, that'll reduce quite a few of the visits that I have. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Whoa. That, that's, my, that's my perspective since I've worked at the prison. Um, in, in, in working, um, so you've mentioned some patients are like very amenable to your, your recommendations in labs. Some patients are very against it and don't want any recommendations or to see you at all. Um, is there anyone that you've kind of encountered in through the course of prison medicine that had no experience with healthcare at all? This is their first time meeting with a doctor. I think quite a few of the people that I, oh, that wow. I've seen are very surprised. And, and you can tell it's, uh, especially when you offer, okay, I'm going to listen to your heart and lungs. What? Yeah, I'm going to use my stethoscope. I'm going to listen to your heart. How are you going to do that? Okay. <laughs> so I have to kind of demonstrate it through. Yeah. So there's some people that definitely, the other thing that you find is people who agree to it. And then when the time comes to do their labs, will refuse their labs. So they won't get them done. Hmm. So, you know, they didn't want to get up that morning. I don't know what it was, but they decided not to do it. Or they called them at a lab time when they already had something else they were going to do. And they didn't want to interfere with that. That sometimes happens to, uh, to inmates. They'll get caught up in something. And it looks like they refused care. But sometimes it's because like they had a visitation at the same time they were supposed to go to this appointment. And, they, and their family traveled hours maybe to see them. 
So they've come back and say, I, I know they wrote it up as a refusal, but I actually didn't want to refuse that appointment, but my family was here. They put it on a day when my family was going to see me, and I don't want to turn them away. So can you reschedule me for that appointment? Yeah, why not? Well, yeah, let's definitely do that. We'll write it up. You know, didn't refuse, had a family visit at the same time, would like to be reseen. And let's see, you know, especially like for hepatitis C treatment, which the president is very aggressively, you know, treating hepatitis C and try to get it, especially the people who are going on parole, you know, let's get them over their hepatitis C and let's not deal with the long-term complications of that, you know, like, you know, hepatic cancer and stuff. So the state of California is, I think, really spending quite a bit of money and doing, a, a, I think, a very proactive job, you know, on our part too, making us like, who hasn't had hepatitis B vaccines? Let's get those going. Here's your list because now they can track it on a computer. Who has positive hepatitis C? Can we get plugged into hepatitis C treatment? Let's get that going. Who is addicted to drugs? Who needs drug treatment? Let's get that going. So they have very proactive programs trying to treat the prisoners. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's pretty impressive, actually. You know, the footwear I see a lot. But, you know, the footwear is, is not a big deal issue compared to hepatitis C, right? You know, and the cost of hepatitis C treatment is $30,000 a treatment. And almost everybody on the upper guards has hepatitis C. Wow. So the state is spending a lot of money trying to treat these patients, you know, especially for long-term illnesses, even people who are there for life, let's say. You know, we don't want to deal with hepatitis cancer. If we can prevent that, why would we do that to them? Mm -hmm. You know? So that's one of the things that I'm very impressed with, with prison medicine, you know? It's almost a, a spare no expense. Now, sometimes I also think that's because fear of litigation, possibly. But I also think there's people in Sacramento who want to do the right thing and take care of people. Interesting. So you've mentioned hepatitis C a couple times now being a big issue with the prison. Do you know what contributes to them having more, like a higher rate of hepatitis C infection? IV drug use and tattooing. Oh, they, they get IV drugs and tattoos, like, outside or inside prison? Like, how do they... Oh, inside prison. There's amazing tattoo artists in prison. And there's some that are really terrible. You'll see some very terrible prison tattoos. And for, especially for the lifers, what you're going to see is a lot of tattoos because they have nothing else to do. So their face is tattooed. Their heads are tattooed. Their neck is certainly tattooed. And if they take off their shirt, wow, amazing. And then you'll see some incredible artwork tattoo. They have some amazing, incredibly artists. And artists who not just do tattoo, but there's also, I, I saw uh, some paintings that a guy was doing on a yard that was buying art supplies and was doing some amazing paintings and he's looking to sell these on the outside. And really amazing paint. I mean, the guy's definitely, truly an artist. It's, it's really amazing stuff. So that and then IV drug use, sharing needles um, and using IV drugs. Um, so on the subject kind of, of IV drug use, are there any other kind of like major drug scandals that you've heard of or kind of have been aware of in the SoCal community that are kind of like stories um, passed around the kind of facilities? No, actually. What I was most impressed with was the lack of drugs in the prison when there was before there was visitation. Hmm. Um, so as far as like guard staff bringing in drugs, I think that might be overblown, you know, in the general... Uh, like, I don't know, uh, legends of prison and that sort of thing. I don't think I've seen a lot of press about it, but, you know, in movies, it looks like the guards are very involved in it. 
prisoners don't have cash. <laughs> They're not paying off guards with top ramen. <laughs> and that's one of the common commodities that prisoners will pay since there's no more cigarettes. <laughs> you know, so you always imagine like, you know, here's a carton of cigarettes, I need this or whatever. There, there's no more cigarettes in prison. And uh, so they can't use cigarettes as the exchange. I, I don't know if it is Top Ramen. I know they buy that, but <laughs> whatever it is they use for currency, I don't think it means much to a guard to bring in drugs. But since visitation, we've definitely seen more drug use. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Dr. Hans, thank you so much for your time today and all your answers. Uh, before we conclude the podcast episode, is there anything you wanted to add for our listeners? Any like stories, any advice, anything you want to add? Um, wow. I think if you're in medicine and you want to look for a place with a need, I think, um, I, I would not rule out completely working in uh, a California state prison. I think it's a, it's a need that, you know, is definitely there. And, uh, I think there's some benefits, you know, both ways. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, this has been Our Untangled Minds. Uh, episode about prison medicine with Dr. Hans. Um, you can go ahead and listen to our podcast episodes on Spotify, iTunes, you know, wherever you can find us. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please email us at oumpodcast at cusm.org. That's o-u-m-p-o-d-c-a-s-t at c-u-s-m dot org.